Welcome back to Redline, a millennial tale of passionate love in the combative workplace set in Boston. Hop on board for the next episode of Pia's Tale here on Redline. The next Redline train to Jailwide is now Open house began auspiciously with a beautiful fall day. The rustling trees cast a shimmering glow over our fairy book setting. At nine, parents began their printed schedules, visiting their kids' classes where we teachers talked about our projects and goals. We pointed out examples of work hanging on walls or displayed on tabletops. Sessions were about 20 minutes and in between, everyone gravitated to the quad, which was a buzzing social scene. I loved going there with my camera and connecting parents to students. I was particularly interested in Lori's husband and daughter. Ambrose Haskell appeared much older than Lori. He was stooped but in a distinguished way and had thinning gray hair and a worn-out patrician face. He dressed in a crumpled suit but without a tie, as if paying respect to past conventions while enjoying the newer, more comfortable ones. Taylor was adorable. Her red tresses and soft, rosy cheeks reminded me of Renoir's little girl in button-down shoes holding a watering can in a garden. Ambrose often held her hand but paid little heed when she broke away to investigate a small Zen garden with a Buddha statue that a former student had made. Ambrose, a Haskell graduate himself, knew the campus was safe for children as no traffic passed through the quad. Everyone was curious to see Tian Wu, May's father, he was just back from China and moved about the buildings with an air of confidence. He was good-looking and radiated energy and intelligence. I liked how he wore a black turtleneck and dark tweed jacket, as if to fit the school's artsy self-image. And even though most of us felt in awe of him because of his wealth, he talked to us naturally, as if we were old friends. I especially liked watching him with May and seeing how close they were. It was always on my mind that she had lost her mother the year before. At lunchtime, Wafa came out of the science building, her hand lightly holding Mr. Wu's elbow, and I thought how that was just like her, getting to know people fast in an intimate way. I zoomed in on them with my camera, capturing their animated faces. Wafa wore a peach-colored sari with a gold-embroidered sheaf that flowed behind her, much like her glossy black hair, now brushed out from its usual braid. She was the Mughal princess I was dying to paint. Lori was nearby, and when she saw Wafa with Mr. Wu, she grabbed her husband's arm and rushed to intercept them. My camera clicked the moment, delighted to capture Lori's furrowed brow and its single-minded intention. Then I zoomed over to little Taylor, left behind in front of the Calder sculpture. The gigantic orange contraption looked like an alien creature about to stomp on her. But she was oblivious to it as she zigzagged this way and that, her arms outstretched like a bird. I smiled at her innocence and mildly wondered what years of living with Lori would do to her. Suddenly, Lori's booming voice brought Wafa and Mr. Wu to a halt not far from me. Mr. Wu, I want to introduce you to my husband, Ambrose Haskell. He's also in real estate, though nothing to compare with your 2008 Olympics. Oh, oh no, <laughs> nothing close to that, Ambrose chuckled in his aristocratic way. But I'm sure you two have a lot in common. Ambrose, what's that commercial project you and your partners have been looking at in East Boston? Oh, well, that, yes, uh, we're still in, in the investor stage. It's, it's, it's a good location with high commercial and residential potential. Uh, I'm not unlike what's been happening downtown on, um, on Washington Street. 
Oh, I'm familiar with Washington Street, Mr. Wu said with his ever-gracious smile. Well, they, they say East Boston's the next big opportunity. Slowly, Lori's body had edged Wafa out of their circle. But Wafa wasn't one to accept such treatment in silence, and with a haughty toss of her head, she said, See you at lunch, and left. Seconds later, sharp cries rang out and everyone on the quad flew into a panic at the sight of Taylor pretty high up on a limb of the Calder sculpture. She lay there hugging its bright orange steel. Lori's voice boomed out as if through a megaphone. Wait, Taylor, don't move! Wait, I said! I snapped pictures thinking of fun captions to put in the school newspaper like, Campus isn't childproof! With plenty of hands now helping Taylor get down, I headed to the dining room for the catered lunch, thinking about Lori's last name, Schlusser, which meant jailer, keeper of the keys. I'd googled it after my first bizarre encounters with her. I wondered why she hadn't taken Ambrose's last name. It was synonymous with New England blue blood. Maybe she had taken it, but she used Schlusser at the school to avoid whispers of nepotism. Wafa waved to me from her table, and I gladly joined her group. Pia, I want to introduce you to Jim and Ellen Potter. They're Matt and Sarah's parents, and they own the Potter Gallery on Newbury Street. I was just telling them about your portraits. You'll have to come see us, Ellen said pleasantly. And I hereby officially commission you to paint my kids in me, Wafa said, her ebony eyes shining at me. Awesome! I'd love to. It's been on my mind for weeks, but with open house and jump-starting this spring arts fest, I haven't had a chance to talk to you. But finally, things will be a lot easier after today, and we can sit down and sync our schedules. Where can we see your work, Pia? Do you have a website? Jim asked. Does she ever? Wafa answered. It's gorgeous. Pia, do you have your business cards with you? Yep, I said, getting them out of my bag. Me too, Wafa said, holding out her hand. Could I have extras for my friends? We all want our kids immortalized. I passed out the cards and thanked everyone while Wafa continued talking. Did you get to the science building yet? The displays are amazing. These kids have brains. We were truly impressed, Ellen said. And Pia, Tian Wu especially praised your students' displays. And Becky's, I added. Yes, exactly. He liked your cross-curricular work and he wanted a copy of May's binder. Yes, Jim said. Her report was quite something. Damn right, Wafa said proudly. Seventeen years old and capable of producing a professional assessment of what global companies can do for conservation. It should be published. I wonder if she'll be a cellist or a climatologist. Maybe both, Ellen said. Wafa's eyes suddenly stared at the double doors where Lori, Ambrose, and Mr. Wu had come into the room. Their trio moved down the center aisle and took seats at the head table with Dale Higgins and Claire Powell, the development head. The parents from Saudi Arabia and Dubai also sat with them. Taylor had been deposited at a middle school table where her slightly older peers were already entertaining her. Not long after, my lunch finished, I got up and shook hands goodbye with the potters. Back to the studio, Wafa smiled, getting up herself. Actually, I'm going to catch a bit of the men's tennis match, I said. Oh, yeah, Jim Potter said. That sounded interesting. We'll probably see you down there. Unfortunately, I'll have to miss it. I've got a conference call in a few, but let's all agree to stay in touch. I'll organize a shinding at my place. That would be nice, Ellen said. Wafa and I left together and found the quad surprisingly quiet. That is, until Lori's voice suddenly blasted us from behind. Wafa, wait a minute. I stepped to the side to let them talk. Lori was furious, her cheek slabs vibrating. 
Excuse me, Wafa, but I I just had lunch with Mr. Wu, and he said he had pledged $300,000 to your festival. That put Dale and me in an extremely awkward position, and Claire, too. What's this all about? Wafa's black brows arched up. About? Do you mean how Tien was so impressed by the global warming display and his own daughter's report on China's pollution that he told me he wanted to be a sponsor of our arts fest? Is that what you're referring to, Lori? Frankly, I'm shocked at your judgment. It's a serious breach of our professional conduct to solicit funds from the very person our executive leadership is courting for a seven-figure gift. Watch out. He might hear you. Wafa said, nodding at the dining room window where Mr. Wu had just turned his head to look out at us. And as far as I'm concerned, Wafa continued, Tien can do whatever he likes with his money. I don't control him, and I certainly didn't solicit him. On the other hand, I wouldn't refuse a donation. Going forward, if you have anything else to say about this, then I want Dale and Claire present. She looked at her watch. I have an important call with the mayor in two minutes. I have to go. Her right arm flung her sari's billowing drape over her left arm, and with her natural majesty, she swept away. Lori's pallid face quivered with anger, and she growled in a low voice to no one in particular. I didn't know Muslims wore saris. Wafa, already partway across the green, spun and pointed her finger. I heard that! Lori turned on her heel and stomped back to the dining room. Her gait was never light, always clunky. Feeling a bit shell-shocked, I moved toward the path that led down to the playing fields. I wondered if Wafa would lose her job, and if my fate were also sealed working under such a personality. Things lightened up down on the tennis courts. Rod and JP wore sexy outfits for their match. JP probably already owned his tight baby blue shorts that showed off his cute rear and jock legs, but I knew Rod had shopped the night before for his silky designer trunks that made his contours visible with every lunge, leap, and smash. We couldn't avoid seeing his actual naked anatomy. Lots of girls sat on the old aluminum bleachers, ogling the men and taking pictures with their phones. I knew they were already in love with JP, but Rod presented something new. A sexy elegance. A ginger-headed GQ look. New sneakers, too. Top of the line. Made for tennis only. Woohoo, Tucker! Rod heard it and answered blandly without looking in that direction. Serena says if you look good, you play good. Do you want our picture? JP grinned at the kids. A chorus of female yeses rose up. The opponents came together at the net, shook hands, and then posed with their rackets crossed for dozens of smartphones held up, mine among them. One of our pictures would make the next issue of Haskell Voice. JP easily won the first three games without Rod showing the least emotion. In fact, he played each point as if he himself were already the champion. It made me think how from the start he had honestly believed he would win. And I wanted him to win. At least a few games for his pride's sake. He had even spent a few hours early that morning at his local club with a hired coach working him out. And indeed, he played well, but JP's skills were on a professional level. Every time JP aced a point, the girls squealed, JP! And when Rod occasionally made a great shot, I called out, Go Rod! Which made his face turn a little meaner, a little more determined to get this guy for his girl in the audience. Then I had to leave for my afternoon session with parents. The score was three to zero. Rod's thoughts were concealed behind a hard face, but I knew he was feeling bad. I knew how powerful his pride could delude him about the outcome of some things. My 20-minute session with ninth-grade parents went by quickly. I had laid out materials for them to try their own hand at shading a still life, if they wanted to stay longer. 
A few did try their hand and told me how much it made them appreciate what their kids had accomplished. I was cleaning up the tables when Charles Hardy came in the door wearing a rakish hat. He knew just how to place it to his best advantage. My voice spoke on its own. Charles, could I paint your portrait sometime? Sure, why not? And I could do yours at the same time. Hmm, that's an idea. Okay, we'll swap. But, Pia, they had an accident on the court. What? Is anyone hurt? JP got hurt. Then his face froze in front of me. His head shook, his lips twitched, but words wouldn't come out. I headed for the door, panic gripping me. He quickly followed, finding words at last. It, it's not funny, but... <laughs> I mean, it, it is in a way. What? What? What's funny? I stopped on the gravel path outside. You mean no one's badly hurt? No, not badly, or, or I don't think so. It's just that Rod, your boyfriend... I rolled my eyes at that. Just tell me what happened. We moved fast toward the tennis courts while Charles talked. JP was winning 5-0, to zero, but the volleys were really awesome. Rod had a lot of points. It's just the games kept going to JP. And then it got to the last game, set point. JP was ahead 40-30. to 30. It dragged out. Rod wouldn't give up. It was really tense. Then, oh my God, that's when... I wish you could have been there. Rod smashed the ball from the net and it went right into JP's stomach like a like a cannonball. JP fell on his knees and and <sighs> Charles couldn't finish, but the hugest smile broke over his face. What? I said. He uh, he shat. No way. I said. Yeah, he did. Right there on the new court. It was awful. The world went blind for me. All I could see was Rod's sly, satisfied smile at J.P.'s demise. It was a gross kind of victory, and it disturbed me. And now my so-called boyfriend had injured and brought humiliation to a teacher, which would affect me on campus. The court was deserted when we got there. It had the haunted feel of a recent disaster. The Tucker truck was gone. A bucket had been left on the court, and though the affected area had been rinsed off, the beautiful blue surface bore a permanent stain. It was like a grave. Here sat Jean-Pierre Marchand, although I was sure Rod would patch it up. I wondered if JP would ever be friends with me again. Thanks for coming to get me, Charles. Everyone sure cleared out of here fast. I still can't believe it happened. Don't worry, I recorded the whole thing, he grinned, holding up his phone. It'll make a great story for the Haskell Voice and the school's Facebook page, Twitter. Shh, don't joke about it. Was Lori here? I'm not sure. It was crowded. We went our separate ways after that, and I texted Rod. Call me, please. But he didn't call me. He texted instead. I can't believe my shot did that. Sorry, honey. I'll repaint the court tomorrow, the whole thing. Patching won't match. And you don't have to worry. JP isn't mad. I drove him home. My truck stinks. Too bad we didn't finish the match. But hey, the way it turned out, I didn't actually lose. Thank you for listening to episode 8 of Redline. Redline is written by G.D. Spilsbury and narrated by Anna Gravel, directed and produced by Fred Greenhalge, with assistant producer Grace Waldron. Redline is dedicated to Jim Cantor and Brooke Lambert. If you've enjoyed this Redline story, please tell your friends about us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Leaving reviews allows us to get more listeners, like yourself, so we can keep bringing you good stories. Learn more about Redline at redlinepodcast.com. That's redlinepodcast.com.
At Indiana Wesleyan University, you can reimagine, reframe, and redefine what's possible. The School of Nursing offers online degrees and certificates that provide an integrated educational experience, combining hard facts with hands-on learning. From hospitals to the mission field, from bachelor's to doctoral degrees, our programs prepare nurses for service all over the globe. Advance your career in healthcare and make a greater impact. Start your journey today at iwunursing.com.